This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And this is the grapevine on 3RRR. And politically, we're in a pretty precarious state at the moment with no clear result from the election over the weekend. So we thought it's a pretty interesting time to look at a piece of bipartisan policy, the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, that began its rollout nationally last Friday, the 1st of July. Uh, the $22 billion NDIS was in large part driven by Bill Shorten as Disabilities Minister. It's gone through three years of trials with the coalition in government and now it's rolling out over the next three years regardless regardless of who's in government. The NDIS marks a massive change to the way disability services are delivered and accessed. And Mary Mallett, who's CEO with Disability Advocacy Network Australia, is on the phone to tell us more about it. And thanks for being with us, Mary. And I think um, it's really great that this uh, NDIS is finally rolling out nationally. I wonder if you can tell us what what started on Friday, last Friday. Uh, so, good morning. Uh, what started on Friday was what they're calling the, the rollout of the NDIS. So the NDIS is the, the biggest new uh, social welfare reform really since Medicare came in. Um, I think lots of people have, will have heard it mentioned. Unless people uh, have a disability or have a family member with a disability or work in the disability uh, industry, then they really won't know very much about what it actually is uh, or, or why, why people are so excited about it. Um, but the, the 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 change in people's lives uh, over the next few years uh, will be transformative, really, um, if the scheme works as it's designed to. And and all indications so far, really, are uh, that it is. Um, so, like you said, there's been trials um, happening around the country over the last three years, uh, and those trials have were deliberately designed to sort of test out the scheme in different ways. In in a couple of states, in South Australia and Tasmania, they brought in um, particular age groups of, of young people. Um, in other areas like ACT, people of all ages came in in the trial site. And, and then in other areas like in Victoria, uh, it was just in one region uh, around Geelong. And, uh, and then in New South Wales, again, they trialled it by starting off in one region, which was around Newcastle. Um, and then it's gradually expanded. And so what those trials uh, have provided is an opportunity to see how the scheme works um, and, and, and build it slowly. Now, what happened, though, as on Friday, on the 1st of July, uh, is, a, is a much faster sort of ramping up of the whole scheme. And so if we go to specifics, what is it that the NDIS offers that's different from the previous regime? So previously, there was, a, there was an agreement between the federal government and all, and all states and territories uh, where, where there was federal money uh, for disability services was provided to the states. But the way that that money was used it was different in each state and territory. And therefore, um, what happened to people and the kind of services they were entitled to or, or how good those services were or how, um, how effective they were really depended... Uh, entirely on where you lived, um, and so it wasn't. There was nothing nationally consistent at all about about what happened for people with disability. Uh, there were 
many, many problems with that. Uh, but just one simple example is that if a person with a disability uh, was receiving some kind of support in, 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 their, in whatever state they lived in, if they moved into state, um, there was no guarantee they would still continue to get that personal care support, um, and, and which is just ridiculous in, in this day and age. So, um, so the fact that the NDIS um, was was brought in, uh, well, you could almost say, <laughs> looking at the current state of politics, it's sort of miraculous that it came in at all. But but there was there was a huge amount of. Um, of advocacy and campaigning done um, by a lot of people over a long period of time um, that, that built uh, enough momentum really and managed to get all sides of politics to agree um, that, that the situation had to be changed. And uh, the Productivity Commission did, a, did a, a really important piece of work where they went around the country and met and listened to people with disability um, who told them what their lives were like, you know, people who told them that, um, you know, that the, the system in their state only gave them, only, only entitled them to, you know, support for one shower a week, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Productivity Commission, you know, understood the, the complete unfairness of the system um, and, and recommended that there needed to be a big new national scheme and uh, enough momentum and and um, positive uh, political support built to allow that to happen. And, and here um, we've got it. And I, I understand also yep. in addition to um, differences between states, it, it mattered under the old scheme how you got your disability, whether you were born with a disability or whether you acquired it in a car accident and the like. And I wonder with the way that we're going forward, um, Mary, I understand we've got a contestable market now. It's this insurance approach. How is that going to change the way services are delivered? Yeah, it's going to make a big difference, actually, and and some of that's still uh, it, it's still being discovered, really, about how how that will um, affect the way services are delivered. The the intention of the NDIS is that individuals with disability will have choice and control about the services that they that they get. Um, so what that means is uh, that the the money. The amount of money that's allocated to them to 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 purchase their services really uh, will be will be allocated to them individually. Now that's completely different from the old system. In the old system, um, all services were block funded, which meant the government gave an amount of money to, um, in some cases uh, itself, because it was government departments delivering some of these services, and in some cases it was to uh, organisations. Uh, so they were given an amount of money for the year to provide services for a certain number of people with disability. The huge difference now is that uh, people will be allocated the money that they need for their services for the year and then they can decide how to spend it. Um, there, There are slight differences within that. Some people will manage that completely themselves. Other people will use the National Disability Insurance Agency to do to coordinate and, and organise that for them. Uh, but but this, this is groundbreaking uh, for Australia. There have been small um, elements of this happening in, in various states and territories in a small way for a small number of people. But to have this now become the way that everyone with a disability uh, can access 
um, what they need really is um, Australia is one of the, the, the first countries in the world to do this on, on a large scale actually um, and people from other countries are uh, watching intently to see how it plays out here. You are tuned to The Grapevine this morning with Dylan and Kalia. We're talking with Mary Mallett who's a CEO of Disability Advocacy Network Australia all about the role of the N- rollout of the NDIS that commenced last Friday and Mary with these sorts of large scale reforms I think a lot of people have become used to kind of cost blowouts and teething problems in the early stages but from what I've read coming out of the National Disability Insurance Agency the trials have gone quite successfully they've um, been delivered to budget I think there's around a 90% satisfaction rate with uh, how they've gone so far is your reading that they have been um, on the whole largely successful? Uh, yes, yes, we would say on the whole they have been. Now, it, it's, it, there's, it's interesting because, of course, this is the, it is the beginning of the scheme and, uh, and it's, it's only happened in a very small way so far. So there's about 30,000 people now around the country who have come into the NDIS. But over the next three years, another 430,000 people will come into the scheme. So as you can imagine, as additional people come in, um, it'll test the scheme in various ways. So one of the things, one of the areas that that our organisation, which is we're the Disability Advocacy Network of of Australia, and we support the advocacy organisations around the country. Now, those organisations, uh, their job really is to help people with disability um, navigate systems uh, if, if they need that help. Um, and of course, the NDIS being a huge, big new system, there are people who do need support to uh, to work out how to get into the scheme and how to use it, and then what to do if something goes wrong. Um, and, and so there is a process uh, if if somebody's not happy with with the NDIS uh, and, and how it's uh, with, with their package or with the way um, the NDIA dealt with them. There's, there's a process where people can make complaints and they can appeal the plan, which is which is what it's called, the, the money that people get is, is, is inside a plan. Um, and then if, if that doesn't work internally in the NDIA, then it can go to the um, Administrative Appeals Tribunal. But that's, that's all new and it takes a while for people to learn how to access and use these things um, so it's been a bit slow to begin with but and one of the things that that the advocacy sector understands from years of experience of, of helping people with systems is that people with disability don't complain much uh, and, and we did a piece of work last year and, and uh, had somebody uh, do some research on on people with disability and complaints and what we learned from that really uh, was that there are strong reasons why why many people with disability don't complain uh, and and the, the the most appalling one really is is fear of retribution was the strongest thing that came out of the survey that we did last year the strongest reason why people don't complain there were others which was that they don't feel their voices listened to um, and uh, and that when they've made complaints in the past it hasn't had any effect but the fear of retribution issue was significant because uh, that was where people had made complaints in the past and then had been treated worse mm. afterwards. And hopefully and this new approach um, oh. can, can can start to um, provide the, the an empowered position that, that has been lacking in the past by the sounds of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. That, it's interesting that you use the word empowered because one of the one of the things about the scheme is it is designed for empowered consumers. And you mentioned earlier about about it now being a marketplace. So the assumption is that in a marketplace, um, people who are empowered consumers can use the market to to swap providers if they want. If they're not happy with the service they're getting, then they just switch to another provider. Um, and it's interesting, Mary, like- because I think, I mean, we've spoken a lot on this program about the electricity market, for instance, which has been contestable for, you know, well over a decade now. And the idea, I mean, there has been teething problems through that, but people can switch now with no fees. And there's a whole range of different services and um, policies that have been introduced over time to in- ensure that, you know, people, consumers um, have those powers. But I wonder when it comes to cost, we have um, an increase in the Medicare levy, which I think kicked in a couple of years ago, 0.5%, I think, increase to fund the NDIS. Is that going to be enough? Because my understanding is that the projected cost is going to be about $5 billion a year by 2019-20. Is that... Is, is that are we going to maybe need another increase in the Medicare levy to fund this NDIS? Uh, it- well, my short answer there is I'm not an economist. So <laughs> Neither am I. I've gone too far into the, into the, the finances. Mm. I would accept to say that, uh, so that actually the total projected cost uh, by the time it's at full scheme is $22 billion a year, actually. Um, so the, the $5 billion is a bit light on. Um, the... the uh, so I won't go for a complicated answer. The short answer is that the Medicare levy was never really intended to... The additional Medicare levy was not intended to completely fund the NDIS. Um, if, if you remember that the NDIS is, is is not something entirely new. It's a new way of doing things. But what it's doing is replacing the, the schemes, the, the disability schemes that all states and territories already had in place. So... When the Productivity Commission did their piece of work that led to the NDIS, uh, what they predicted was the the way that the system was currently running, if something wasn't done about it, it was going to blow out to cost $30 billion. So their predictions were that, that doing this, bringing in a new scheme, operating it more efficiently and providing people what they needed at an early stage was going to save money. So it, it's it's looking at it in a slightly different way, but their prediction was that the cost of the scheme, the $22 billion, was less than the total that the existing schemes were going to end up costing. So it's going to be better services, cost less than the projected, and um, it's now policy and now being rolled out around the country. And um, Mary, hopefully, hopefully we can um, get you back later in the year and hear a bit more about how it's um, how it's going towards sort of yeah Christmas um, when we're about six months in. Thanks so much for being with us on Triple R, uh, Mary Mallet. She's our Disability Advocacy Network Australia CEO, uh, talking about the NDIS rollout. And um, in three years, it's going to ramp up from about thirty thousand people now um, involved with the NDIS. Yeah, yes, to 460,000 people. So a massive rollout coming our way. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Path to Recognition is an event on this week for NAIDOC, and I imagine if anyone uh, 
had their speaking notes already written, they might be revisiting them about now, or maybe not, as the path to recognition is not just driven by political leaders. Many argue that constitutional recognition needs to come from a grassroots movement. Adjunct Professor Muriel Bamflett is uh, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency. Uh, she's on the panel this Thursday night discussing um, recognition. And um, Muriel is uh, joining us again. We haven't had you in for a little while. No, Welcome. In a while. And um, before we talk about the event, I'd love to ask you first about Linda Burney, um, the member yep. for Barton in New South Wales, the first Indigenous woman to win a lower house seat in the federal parliament. And I understand you know her quite well. Yeah, I went to um, Geneva with her and we went um, for the working group on Indigenous peoples. So I was able to, um, but I've known her for a a number of years. She's been a very strong advocate for education over the years. Um, she was Minister for Children before she became De- Deputy Premier of New South Wales. So um, a woman that's very passionate about Aboriginal people and very driven by the need of Aboriginal people, very articulate, very um, very passionate um, and I, I'm so, we're so proud of an Aboriginal woman who would have ever thought in my lifetime anyway that and to have Linda Burney as well. And she, um, I watched her speech um, on Saturday night and it was a real high point, I think, in what is otherwise a very confusing um, election (laughs) result, Um, but a very articulate and I think she showed uh, in her speech with all the people surrounding her that it was very much a grassroots campaign. She's she's won that seat for the ALP back from from a coalition member that was there before. And I wonder... um, whether you know that sort of style of campaigning is something that um that she is 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 known for yeah and look um linda's one of those ones that even when she went into politics and got um elected she never gave the community way um and she was still involved in the community she would go to the knockout carnivals the new south wales knockout carnival and and mix with people and talk to people and and hear you know the voice of people so i think it's really important when you have politicians that don't forget and leave people behind and I think that Linda's one of those people that you know she's very committed to Aboriginal but and I think that she knows the issues so um, I I think they're in for a hard time up there I think she's really going to stir them up quite a bit so I'm yeah very proud of her and that she ran a good campaign and I think when you do go with people when you do listen to people and when you you know hear the voice of people it shows because people then vote for you. Well that's if the election results tells us anything so far it's that people weren't really listening to um you know many of our kind of standard politicians people were tuned out and and we seem to have a lot more um eclectic candidates this time around yeah and i think that you know i think that um a lot of people are mis um reading and not looking at particularly young people where they're figuring and how they're voting and how they're um informing the country now we've got a lot of um younger people coming through with different views and and if we don't pitch if you know our generation or older generations don't pitch at you know young people then we're going to pay the price and i think that that's what the election was about i think it was a lot of very much of the same old same old and you know people want to hear more people want to hear different um i think that there was an absolute absence of anything um around aboriginal um, about, you know, what a, a perfect opportunity to be, begin the discussion on treaty. Um, you know, the Premier in Victoria has certainly led that. And just to have something different. And, and you know, treaty has, you know, was a bit of a test here in Victoria. But certainly um, our Premier, you know, stood staunch and said, I'm supporting self-determination and we'll begin the process of a treaty. 
Uh, and where do you think we're at with that currently? Because Bill Shorten's said uh, fairly recently that he's kind of open to, to discussing a treaty along, along with constitutional recognition and with people like Linda Burney now um, mm. looking like well, being in the parliament and also Pat Dodson in the Senate. Do you think that will kind of start to gain more traction? I think so. I think that... Um Always the challenge is what's in a treaty and the words to a treaty and how do you enter into a, a treaty with so many nations of Aboriginal people in a country. And so, But we know that where there are treaties, there are better outcomes. And, you know, there's a lot of research about where Aboriginal people are um, have treaties and self-determination that the, the outcomes for Aboriginal people and are much better. And so across all the indicators, health, education, um, juvenile justice, the youth suicide, the whole lot. So I think we have to... You know, look at that data and know that when Aboriginal people can determine their own future, can have you know governments committed to entering into that treaty, we can get better outcomes. And uh, we saw when um, Nova Paris was in the Senate that she did get behind the Recognise campaign. And I wonder if um, you see that campaign as being the sort of main one for for getting um, constitutional recognition. Is that still? Yeah, I mean Victoria is sort of a little bit. Um, chicken and egg they're saying they'd prefer a treaty first victoria is really keen on having a treaty because we believe that a treaty sets the foundation for constitutional recognition and so all those other things will come but um victoria overwhelmingly voted that it wanted a treaty first so a lot of um, aboriginal people voice their concern about if we get a constitutional people will tick the box and then move on and we won't ever get a treaty so there's a concern that if we do that um but you know, the Constitution is very dry. Have you ever read it? Sort of I have, actually. <laughs> I have a copy at home. I'm probably one of the few. Um, really? And, yeah, I don't consult it all the time, but it is there, you yeah. know, and, and because I think, um, I don't know if, uh, in education anymore, but we used to have a pretty good civics education, so, yeah. you know, at mm. my school anyway, we all got a copy of it, <laughs> and um, we didn't, you know, um, but... It's a very boring cover even. Yeah. They, they should spice that one up. But I, I think, um, you know, the idea of, of having um, racist provisions in That's the Constitution, right. like a lot of people, and I think I would imagine most Australians want to, want that to not be there and, and had uh, a lot of people didn't realise there still were racist yeah. provisions in the Constitution. Well, I think that's the, the big um, issue. <coughs> Sorry, I should um, the reality is, is that we do have a constitution that um, is racist towards Aboriginal people and it you know, saw the, the Northern Territory intervention when you look at the provisions the government was able to make special provisions for Aboriginal people. It was never written into the constitution for that reason. Mm-hmm. It was written into the constitution to protect Aboriginal people but um, it was used in a context of being able to make provisions that weren't in the best interest, particularly in the Northern Territory. And, and I mean We've spoken with a range of uh, people on this show previously about uh, constitutional reform and recognition and and also the notion of a treaty and how that might advance. And uh, recently we spoke to Marcia Langton about her book, uh, which canvassed, I think, 17 different Aboriginal leaders' perspectives on constitutional reform and recognition and a treaty. And there's a a wide range of views in that book. But I think if there's one common thread, it's that if we're going to go down the path of constitutional reform, it needs to be meaningful and not an end point right. in itself. Yeah, and I think that um, getting rid of the race provisions is one step, but also having the recognition that we are the first peoples and a sovereign nation in our own. And part of the issue around entering into a treaty is um, the concern that we would cede our sovereignty, and other countries have, and um, 
obviously as Aboriginal people in Victoria we're very clear that we're not going to cede our, our you know, um, sovereignty here in Australia but I think that you can look at, um, if you look at New, T- New Zealand and the Waitangi Treaty, they didn't get that right first up and I think that you know there were five goes before they actually got the words right and so I think that um, we may not get a treaty right in the first go but there's overwhelming support from the Aboriginal community to enter into a treaty and I think that Moreland already has begun the process in this region of entering into a treaty with local peoples um, so I think there are um, examples of where treaties are working and, and treaties are about agreements between um, you know first peoples and um, other people across about what do we want for Aboriginal people around culture around um, you know land resources uh, and all of those things so it's really important that we have those. Mm-hmm. And why do you think, um, Muriel, and I, I get this impression quite strongly, particularly from from um, political leaders, that we only get one go at these things. You just said there that uh, other um, um, countries around the world have had multiple goes gotcha. and refined things to get them right, whereas I feel like we always get this sense that you've got one go, we've got one referendum and that's it. But obviously we've had referendum before. Okay. They haven't been successful, um, some of them, but... It's not just one go, is it? We can... There is a process we can undertake. Look, I think that um, constitutional recognition, um, early conversations were that there'd be a lot of backlash, there'd be a lot of people not wanting constitutional recognition because they were concerned about um, that it would lock into place um, agreements or uh, provisions for Aboriginal to take legal and there were major businesses that were concerned about, you know, what that would mean, particularly for mining, for all of those. And so... There was always a concern that there would be that massive um, push against recognition because there's always a concern around First first Peoples about um, ceding rights and what does that mean, what do I need to give? And and people will fear monger. Um, You know, there are things about I'm going to be able to come and take your house and your land and, you know, next thing I'll be driving off with your boat and out of your backyard. I mean, it's... We had that around native title, didn't we? That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's a concern and I think that people do fear monger and so how do we actually put it up as it is? And I think Victoria's a right place. I mean, we've had when self-determination, when the Premier talked about it, you know, there was no backlash, you know, in Victoria. Other states and territories, um, I've got, you know, a sister that came down for the treaty forum and she said we could not have this conversation in New South- in Queensland. So your this state is a very grown up state. It's prepared to, you know, tackle the big issues and I, I think I'm very proud to be a Victorian, let me tell you that much. It's twenty seven past ten here on three triple R and <gasps> Adjunct Professor Muriel Bamflett is our guest and she's speaking on a panel, um, The Path to Recognition, which is coming up this week, uh, on Thursday actually at six thirty PM uh, over at the Abbotsford convent and a really interesting panel and I wonder um Muriel what you see coming from from the panel of people is it going to be quite diverse views i think so and i mean um nayuka who's um on the panel with me i don't know if you've ever interviewed nayuka um an amazing young woman with an amazing mind and um certainly would ask you to invite her in and have a conversation because i think she's going to be another linda bernie in the future because she's just so articulate very very knows um the politics and knows where you know where is aboriginal people represented um australia um on envir- the environment indigenous young people on environment so i think um 
you know, and I think this panel will challenge us. I think that um, it, it's it's a discussion that we need to have, and I, I'm just I think in Victoria we're really concerned now because will constitutional recognition get up? Um, and there has to be a push from the community to get Aboriginal people involved. It's not either or. I think it's important that we do vote yes for constitutional recognition for Aboriginal people. But at the moment, there's a view that if we go with constitutional recognition, we will not get treaty. And there's some ideas out there whenever these sorts of things are discussed, kind of uh, federal attempts at, I guess, reconciliation or, or to reform the constitution, um, that these are symbolic gestures. Uh, that they were some of the accusations around Kevin Rudd's apology to the stolen generations, mm. um, that they're not necessarily addressing kind of tangible uh, issues or, or disadvantage in Indigenous communities. But you work um, with the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency across a whole lot of issues uh, affecting people's families at that very kind of uh, direct level. What sort of, I guess, tangible consequences do you see as coming out of the process of constitutional reform and or a treaty? Look, I mean, already with the Premier's, you know, signing off and, and talking about self-determination and talking about Aboriginal inclusion, his government is actually working very closely with um, Aboriginal communities to transfer Aboriginal children and the authority for Aboriginal children back to Aboriginal communities. No other state or territory is doing that. So at the moment, um, there are 1,500 Aboriginal children in care. Um, about 300 are managed by Aboriginal communities and the government is actually saying I want a plan we're looking at targets we actually we, we've just um, been funded to for Aboriginal guardianship the transfer of all guardianship of orders for Aboriginal children to an Aboriginal organisation. This is a government, and, and as Aboriginal people, you know, for so long we've been throwing stones at everybody and say, you've got to do this, you've got to do better, you should do this. Now it's time for us to say we're going to do better. Mm. We're actually... And so I think that treaties will give us an opportunity to take to go forward and be self-determining and be self-managing, but it will take a lot of effort because we have to work with a different system. You know, and systemic inclusion is quite hard for Aboriginal people because we used to land, we used to music, we used to living traditionally to move to a different system. So how do you do how do you do both? And I think that we're really sort of challenging ourselves. But the thing that we have to hang on is, you know, our Aboriginal culture and how do we ensure that our children and have a future being Aboriginal children into the future, what are we doing around restoring their culture around language? And this week, NADOC week, you know, National Aboriginal Day Day of Commemoration is such an important week and it's time where we dance and, you know, we, mm. everybody flies flags and so you know, it's such an important week for us and celebrating and ceremonies and, and it's where non-Aboriginal people as well, you see um, non-Aboriginal people now much more open to flying the flag, to putting, display, displaying the word womanjika which means welcome in the land of the, in, in on in the language of the Woiwurrung people. So I think that when you see those things and when you see Bunjil in town, and you know, it's all of those things that make you really proud to be an Aboriginal in Victoria. Yeah, and we love celebrating NAIDOC Week. We're actually de devoting the rest of this program um, this morning to, to NAIDOC and NAIDOC events. And I, I've got the impression that NAIDOC is becoming more and more important <laughs> each year. Yeah, the struggle is to try and keep it within one week. And <laughs> so, um, and, you know, predominantly it used to be a very Melbourne-based, but now it's starting to really get much 
much broader and bigger things than other local governments and, um, you know, are, are, are running a lot more activities and football clubs are doing things. And so there'll be a football game, Thomastown, I think, this week, play our Fitzroy Stars. And so that'll be a NAIDOC game and um, and they play for the NAIDOC Cup. And, and it's a really... They, you know, the young fellas go in and really put 100% into that game. We're so proud of, you know, every aspect of NAIDOC Quick because it just brings out so many, you know, um, you know su- such goodwill within the community. Well, there's lots going on and one of the events happening this week is the one we've been um, speaking about. It's called the Path to Recognition and uh, Muriel Bamflat is on that panel, including um, Dr Kirsty um, Gover is there, Nayuka um, Gori is on that panel as well, being convened by Joshua Smith and it's down at... Um, the uh, convent building, the community and linen rooms at the convent building in Abbotsford. And uh, I think it's going to be a great event. Yep. It's this um, Thursday, 7th of July, 6.30pm. And I actually didn't check. Do people need to buy tickets or is it a, an event that people can turn up to? We don't know. You need to get onto the website and there's lots of events up there. Um, you do need to buy tickets. You do need to yeah, buy tickets. Right. Thank so you, you very can, much. Yeah, you can, <laughs> so you can buy tickets uh, online um, if you just search the Path to Recognition event at the Abbotsford convent. Yeah. Mm. And um, have a wonderful night and um, hopefully it won't be so long till we see you again. No, uh, thank you. Thanks, Muriel. Muriel Bamflett there and she's um, also CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We're focusing this morning on NAIDOC Week, um, kicked off on the weekend, runs all week. There's heaps of events on and the significance of the Yarra River is a subject of a conversation tomorrow night between author Tony Birch and poet and historian Bruce Pascoe. And uh, Tony's new book is called Ghost River and it's set uh, several decades ago close to the Yarra where it bends through the city through Collingwood and Abbotsford and um, this event is part of NAIDOC Week celebrations and Tony's in with us this morning and it's great to have you. Thank you very much. And um, reading your book um, really does, you know, take us down to that part of the river sort of as it goes through Abbotsford, past the convent and the children's farm and um, behind Collingwood there. But it's that era where um, before the Eastern Freeway stretched across that river and um, I suppose take us back to what the river looked like in those days, Tony, because um, it's, what, three decades ago? Well, I suppose um, just prior to the um, demolition for the for the beginning of the freeway. I suppose the major difference between the Yarra then and now would be really its inaccessibility to the public. So that on what you would call the Collingwood side or the industrial side, a lot of those factories um, behind Collingwood, the old Collingwood football ground, so I talk around Trenary Crescent, a lot of those are sort of condominiums now. They were big um, linen mills and some of them had been closed for several decades and you couldn't actually access the river behind them. There were no bike paths or walking tracks so that for us living very close to the river, there are a couple of sort of windy tracks that we could find our way down to the river through. But once you got down onto the river, particularly on, again, this side of the river, you would rarely come across another person. Um, The other side of the river is quite interesting because it is a national park and it's very unusual to have a national park in an urban setting so that certainly that side of the river is used a little bit more for for recreation but for us as teenagers we really pretty much had it to ourselves um the other change i suppose or the other issue around the hour is that it was incredibly polluted um around that time the river itself had been used as an open drain 
since um, industrialization in the 19th century, but also it was it was sort of used as a bit of a tip. So a lot of stuff was dumped down there. You're always finding rubbish. So. For us as kids, it was a great adventure, but I wouldn't, as an environmentalist, I wouldn't sort of disguise the fact that it was also a river that was really heavily neglected by 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 the city of Melbourne. And, I mean, the Yarra appears in your writing in, in Shadowboxing and in other pieces as well, but with Ghost River, was that book kind of a long time coming, devoting a, a whole book to the Yarra and, and the role it, pl- it plays in young people's yeah, lives? Yeah, it's about era? 40 years in the making. Um, it's interesting, you're right, that I'd written several short stories about the Yarra and they'd, I'd had a Yarra River story in each of my three um, short story collections. I always had in mind to write a big river novel and, yeah, I was a teenager like most kids. I'd read the Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn novels and loved them. Um, but a book that had been really influential from a very young age was a book called Kestrel for a Knave by an English writer, Barry Hines, who unfortunately died recently. And the attraction and the similarity that I learned from reading that book was it was set in the north of England, but it was set in a, a, a coal mining town. So we had a kid living in a very sort of polluted industrial setting but he could walk, you know, a few minutes out of the, the village and find himself in this, this sort of wild place where he became associated with the kestrel, the bird. And one of the great fortunes I had as a teenager when I lived in Collingwood and when I lived in Richmond, we lived in the public housing estate, the Housing Commission, is that we could access the river a very short walk away. So I think we're really lucky, again, as teenagers, although yeah, we lived in the inner city and I, I love the streets of the inner city, to be able to get to the river and explore the river and have yeah, weekends at the river for many years was, was, was wonderful. And I also went to high school, at Richmond High School, which is now, I think, a school called Melbourne Girls College. Um, Richmond High School was victim of the cuts made by the Kennett government after 1992 that school overlooked the river so I had the strange experience of looking out of my classroom window at the river every day which was both attractive and and quite frustrating because I wasn't someone who enjoyed school and the river was a a place that I always wanted to be. I I think um, the Yarra, I grew up in Eltham on the river up there and it's a completely different river isn't it compared to as it as it goes through I mean even though you know Studley Park is a very beautiful park and there's you know through Fairfield there there's it's very treed in parts but it is quite different um, in the city compared to you know, closer to the source. At the yeah, and, and in a way that's the great story of the river, whether, again, it's detrimental or not. I mean, one of the things that I didn't realise at the time because literally you talk um, at the opening where the story is set. I mean, I know the river or did from around Dyke Falls to the city, possibly. But as I've got older and I've become a lot more interested in other issues, I've followed the river further and further upriver. And, yeah, you don't have to go much further than the industrial part of the river to find really important Aboriginal sites. So you can go to Kew, you can go to Burke Road, further on. There are really important um, billabongs that Aboriginal people use and are still important to Wurundjeri in that part of the river today. And as you go further up river, you do get a greater sense of the use of that river by Aboriginal people, both pre and post um, occupation. And what I've also learnt, of course, is doing more thinking and work is about even the parts of the river that I knew is that even though you have this sort of overlay of industrialisation of how those parts of the river, the Birung, as as Wurundjeri and Bunurong would know it, how those parts of the river function um, for, for Kulin people.
Yeah, and there's, and there's stories that I don't know, and I wonder um, maybe um, let us in on some of the, the stories of, of, of some of these significant sites along the river there that, that people well, might not be aware of. I think the most important story is the one of the formation of the, of the Yarra as people know it. So when I talk about the Birong River, it's not just an alternate name for the Yarra River today. We're talking about a history of a river which has changed dramatically um, during um, Indigenous time but is often unaware, um, non-Aboriginal people completely unaware of it. So, for instance, before the um, end of the Ice Age, um, the Birung, the mouth of the Birung River was at what we call today the Port Phillip Heads. So you have Port Sea on one side and Queenscliff Point Lonsdale on the other. That was, of course, a much narrower opening. It was the mouth of a river called the Birung. And that river, um, its banks what we would call now Port Phillip Bay. So with the um, collapse of the Ice Age, which is, when I say collapse, I'm being a bit dramatic because it's much more of a, a gradual change. Um, the bay was formed during that period so that what we now know is the mouth of the river was never the mouth of the river. So, so in other words, the river as we know it today is a very young river in that sense. Um, this is a very important story that was told to early occupiers by Aboriginal people and it was documented, but it was dismissed as a... Yeah, what we call Aboriginal folklore, but it's a story that has very important scientific significance to both Aboriginal people and, and those who have come since who are interested in the story. But to sort of, in a way, blow our minds further, um, what we know before the end of the... What, what some people call the land bridge between Victoria and Tasmania, which was land itself before the um, end of the Ice Age... The Yarra River ran through to what we call Tasmania and joined up with the Tamar River and ran out of the bottom of Tasmania. Now, the other interesting thing there, and you know, this again to non-scientists like myself find a bit mind-boggling, you can do archaeological dives in, the, in Bass Strait and you can trace the, the river across Bass Strait People talk about underwater waterfalls, which seem an anachronism to us, but because of saltwater and freshwater weight of water, um, you can still trace the, the, the pre-Ice Age river. Now, it sounds almost like a mythical science fiction story, but the other aspect of that that's important to us, and it's important to my day job, which is researching on around climate change partly, is that knowing how those changes occurred during that climate event is important knowledge for us to understand how climate change works today. So that even if you thought in a philosophical sense, you're talking about people, societies, nations that had to find ways to adapt and adjust to new climatic conditions and do so in a way that reacted earlier but with more subtle change than the way we think about climate today is something dramatic yeah. with a sort of dramatic apocalyptic outcome. So one of the things that frustrates me today is that when we think about climate, we need to think about how we sensibly deal and adapt to change rather than 
run around like it's the end of you the know, world. You know, you made me think it, it took um, David Attenborough to, to let me in on this story, but the story of the, the Great Barrier yeah. Reef is similar in that yeah. um, where the reef is now was where the edge of the yeah. continent of Australia was. Yeah. And, and that that story of the of the water inundating, going over mountains, coming yeah. into the land is still told yeah. um, by, by local um, Aboriginal people in Queensland. And, and what what's frustrating about that is that that's those type of stories are replicated across Australia, and those stories, Aboriginal nations around Australia were quite open to sharing those stories with non-Aboriginal people, but again, those stories were either dismissed or seen as something quite quaint or given a religious significance in a negative sense in other words there's something quite you know, fundamentalist about it and what is not understood is aboriginal spirituality stories of aboriginal spirituality are intrinsically linked to aspects of science and and other forms of knowledge so rather than separating them out they should be seen as having a sort of a coexistence so when i i've read of two Rwandari men who documented the changes and the birth of the bay to a man called Joseph Tice Jellibrand in 1836 and he documented himself in his own diary but he again he wrote it up as an Aboriginal folklore. Now one of the most remarkable things that occurred in recent years that people I think have forgotten about is that when the Port of Melbourne decided to dredge the Yarra River, the shipping lane, which is a very shallow shipping lane, about 14 metres, down to 17 metres, they sent two archaeological divers down at the heads and as reported in the Age newspaper, because people, I don't know why we believe the Age newspaper any more than any other newspaper, but people often say, you have you made this up? They did a dive to the original bed of the Birung River at 102 metres. Now, when the science around that was quantified, the story, the scientific story told by Rurundjeri equates in time to the same sort of scientific change. So when Rurundjeri are telling um, an Englishman this story in 1836, they're not telling him a quaint folklore tale, they're explaining the science of this place to him and he doesn't get it. And I think what I'm doing and what a lot of people are doing now is looking at those um, documentations a lot more closely to see what information is being imparted. And fundamentally, at a philosophical level, my ultimate interest is, is while I have an interest in the science, I think what Indigenous communities globally have to say to the you know, other societies is to offer, in fact, a philosophical and moral and ethical way of dealing with climate change as much as a scientific one. Because if we look at how the issues dealt with in Australia and the hysteria that's created around it and the denial, what we get a sort of false economic arguments. We don't get the important philosophical and ethical arguments discussed about social equity. Yeah, the people in Australia don't talk as people... Well, not enough people in Australia talk as people speak about in Indigenous communities, Indigenous communities globally, climate change is an issue of human rights and social justice as much as anything else. And when you understand that, well, you have to respond to that in a, in a way that understands it intellectually 
regardless of the economics involved. And that, that's something you're looking at in your role at Victoria University, which yeah. you've been in, I think, for a couple of years now, is that Yeah, right? I've, I've actually been a year into a five-year fellowship, so part of it is looking at that, and part of it is to literally get around the country. I'll be doing a lot more field work from now on and talking to people about climate and in a way to come up with models where we can, as local communities, discuss climate change in a productive and um, much more... Um, well, when I say in an intimate level, so it's that I think that we've got to come up with solutions. It is a global problem, but and I'm not being cliched here, that sort of think local is also important. So that one of the things that we're doing at Victoria University is that we're working with a group of Aboriginal elders at Laverton North in a community hall. So we're not you know, going on country and trying to get the wisdom of the elders, although I'm sure they have it, but the first venture we're doing is I'm going to be cooking lunch for them at the community centre. We're going to sit down and have a yarn, all have a say what we think about the issue so that, in a way, it's a good way of deciding whether we're informed or ill-informed, whether involved or not involved, how do we all get involved in talking about climate in a way that, that becomes a productive outcome. And it's kind of, uh, it's easy to despair when you hear about, you know, people like Pauline Hanson calling for a Royal Commission into Climate Science. But on the other side, we've kind of seen more people uh, accepting the science of climate change and seeing it as a really big issue. And I guess it seems to be, um, from my perspective, a growing interest in kind of local histories as well. I mean, a lot of people, if we return to the Yarra River, yeah. engage with it, um, you know, on a very direct basis. It's um, got kind of a, you know, it's a dividing line in the city between north and south. Yeah. And so so uh, have you noticed that there is an appetite for these sorts of discussions about local history well, and well, climate just a change? Couple of, yeah, just a couple of things. I mean, um, I did note um, yesterday that the, the polling, quite extensive polling that had been done by the ABC actually found that climate change was a, and is a major issue for people. So um, I think it was 75% of people who, who were polled in this extensive poll said that climate change is very important to them. So politicians need to be more aware that it is becoming... And it was national widely... too. It wasn't just in one state or no, whatever. It was right. across national. across Australia. The other thing that's important, you talk about the local history, is that um, I'm very lucky um, to do a global project for 18 months. I work with 15-year-old kids here in Melbourne and I work with kids in Dublin, Gdansk, um, Berlin and London. I visited those schools and worked with 15-year-old kids. And one of the things that became quite apparent is that the notion of climate science was often beyond kids, a bit above their head, or, you know, a lot of these kids lived in very poor neighbourhoods, and, you know, and some of them are so poor, like where I work in Dublin, these kids were thinking about if they're going to get a meal the next day, so trying to say, well, now, imagine the big picture of climate science when you've got a hungry belly, it's it's hard to, to get through to them, but we dropped that whole notion and started to talk to all of those kids about locality, mm. and we talked, we said, we want you to do some writing on places you love, and we, we emphasised places you love and I said to these kids who are pretty tough kids it's okay to say to your mate I love this place so they wrote about paddocks down the end of their street where they kept their ponies they wrote about small parks at the end of a, an estate in London so after they'd written about with great passion about places that were important to them which is very local we said okay now we want you to think about what would happen if these places underwent change as we experience in other parts of the world whether it be through bushfire flood etc and they really got it they got the connection that their places matter, their places are connected to other places, and they don't want their places lost. So when we 
went about it that way, they really appreciated the importance of, of, of protecting locality. And I, I think that's one of the one of the many ways to, to deal with it. The other thing I, I, I found out, and I think there might be a way to talk to Pauline Hanson about her Royal Commission um, on Climate Science, is you work strategically. And the thing that I found is that different people, and this is not cynical, you need to engage with different communities in different ways. So if I were to say, I imagine to some of your triple R listeners, okay, we're in a very desperate situation. We have to act now. So I want you to act by getting out in the street tomorrow. We're going to do a blockade. People will act. If you talk to some people about we're in a very desperate situation, they will literally freak out and they will you know, put their head under the dooners. Um, it's really interesting you say that, I think, mm. because um, oh, we should say Tony Birch is with us and um, talking about lots of things. Um, he's speaking at an event this week. We're supposed um, to be talking about the river. I know, we're talking about Yarra River. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also talking about sort climate change. We're talking about politics, you know, yeah. we're talking We're talking on Triple R. Um, and I, oh, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, no, that's right, about messaging. And I think we have a lot of fragmentation, not just in yeah. the media, but in the way that um, people who are successful communicators maybe always spoke to different audiences in different ways yeah. and made it and and included people and i think yeah. we're hearing this more and more not just um in in polls but in in the result of things like the, the brexit vote that yeah. that if you ignore people and ignore their very legitimate yeah. and very strong held views then they're not part of the conversation then you're going to get yeah. um people coming at issues in completely different ways yeah it's mm. interesting because i gave a, a the bruce mcginnis centenary lecture at victoria university last week and a couple of old schoolmates of mine came who they weren't interested. One of them said, I want to see what you do. And they, or he took photographs of the food and put it on Facebook, you know. And he said, yeah, come to a Tony Birch, let you get fed well. But he said to me after, this is really important stuff, isn't it? And I said, yeah, and, yeah, we've talked since. And I think because he, he trusts me and has faith in me, he, 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 he went with it. But I think it goes back to the point about, yeah, whether we despair or not or whether... Where some people would say we're in a hopeless situation, and you do hear some people say it's too late. Now, <coughs> I don't dis- it is- to say it's too late. Why it's wrong? And um, there's a great argument for the, a, a book um, by American writer Rob Dixon, um, "Environmentalism and the Poor," where he says the world's not going to end. What you understand is people will live in a, in a much worse world, and they'll have to keep living in that world. And we know that there are people today around the world who live in those sorts of worlds. We know that, say, the Inuit have been experiencing sea rises since the 1970s. We know that in the Pacific there are communities who are going to lose their land soon. We know that in parts of the world where there's extreme drought, people are living that way yeah, now. In Bangladesh, mm. the flooding is yeah, appalling all yeah. the time. So yeah. my sense is, well, the world is not going to end, so how do we make the world more tolerable and do the best we can and whether i'm pessimistic or optimistic is irrelevant what matters is i've got to do the work so i don't even i don't concern myself about it might sound odd about how i feel what i concern myself about how can i as a as a citizen engage with other people and get other people to think and share that thinking so sometimes i've you know i've done some work where i think or things seem pretty desperate my next thought will be how do i get people engaged with that issue and i actually have felt a lot better about 
I feel a lot better by doing something rather than not doing something. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And pretty simple. Yeah. If mm. you if you think oh, it's all over, I mean, that's a pretty terrible situation to be in. I think the more that people get out there and do stuff and talk about it and act, and I talked about this the other night, I think what we will see in the near future is a lot more direct action protests and a lot more widespread action amongst a wider group of citizens. So Mm. rather than just those who might see it's important now, I think there's going to be a lot of widespread civil... And we saw that, haven't we, with um, with the coal seam gas and we've seen a lot of that sort of direct action from people that you wouldn't... Uncommon alliances. Yeah. But I wonder, I mean, just going back to your book, Tony, Ghost River um, and the River and in Melbourne, um, this idea of of speaking to 15-year-olds about places that are precious to them and places that might not be precious to others takes me back to Dites Falls and and the way that you describe that going back a few decades now before the freeway cuts through, this idea of Ren, you know, one of your characters and Sonny um, can't imagine why anyone would dynamite that river yeah. or change it in yeah. any way because it's so precious. And and one of the surveyors just going, well, the road's going through. Yeah. Like, and not seeing what they saw. And I wonder if that's, um, you know, that's part of you bringing empathy, I suppose. Oh, to- absolutely. I mean, part of it's through personal experience because... Um, yeah, not only did we lose part of the Yarra River when the freeway was built, we lost our house. And when I say we lost our house, we didn't own it. Um, we've never owned... My mum still rents. But during my childhood, we had two houses knocked down for housing commission estates, one for the freeway, um, schools, factories, a lot of places, my grandmother's house, my great-grandma's house. So that experience of total loss of both home and your locality is something our family has gone through many, many times. I mean, it's interesting also that people, when you think about the notion of sort of Aboriginal life, Aboriginal country and um, European occupation and colonisation, is that many, many Aboriginal people, as much as losing country, also again, living in the inner city of Melbourne, lost their family homes, lost extended family connections. Um, And the other wider issue there, so in the book, the surveyor himself is flabbergasted at the sight of these kids, these two really dishevelled kids, and he says at one point, yeah, these places don't even appear on the map. And that was quite deliberate in a way to say this little corner of the world, because of its isolation, hidden away, got left behind. At a wider level, and I don't say this too sort of high intellectually, but it's a critique of modernism because Mm -hmm. one of the issues of modernism in the 20th century is you just take all before you and you wipe it out because progress is inevitable, progress is unstoppable, and progress must be good. And one of the things that we've learned, and we learn this now because of something like climate change, the project of modernism, the project of capitalism from the Industrial Revolution onward has left a lot of damage in society and damage that people dismiss by saying, well, it's the inevitability of progress. Now, when we think about what's happening globally to the climate, if we simply say, well, this is the inevitability of progress, it's a 
It's suicide. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the characters in the book are kind of these uh, social outcasts as well who are living near the river and, and for one reason or the other haven't been able or welcomed into kind of functioning and living in the, the, the modern world, so to speak. But there, there seem, although there's that kind of element of, I guess, despair and loss uh, in Ghost River, there's also a great deal of hope. I mean, the title itself says that, you know, the river always exists. It's always there beneath, um, you know, this new line that it cuts yeah. through. Would you say that as well? I mean, the two things about that are about the, the river, and again, it goes back to my point about, you know, the, the planet will always be there. Maybe we won't be, but, the, you know, the planet's got more... The planet has more chance of rejuvenating itself if we're not here. Mm. I mean, that's a reality. In regard to the river, the, what um, Tex, the old Aboriginal guy, is saying is that whatever's happening here on the surface, the old Birung, the Ghost River is there, and that's true. That river is still there in, under... The, in, under Bass uh, Strait. In the bay. Yeah, it's there. But the other thing that you pick up on that I think is important to note here is that that... None of these communities, whether it be the two boys or the the, the men, men living on the river, they're very, they're pragmatists. They live with the reality of what they've got. So, I've always, you know, again, I, I worked at a his, as a historian in Melbourne, Melbourne University, and there was a great urban historian, a Marxist historian, Raph Samuels, who passed away many years ago. He said, "What the middle class? What?" The, those who run sort of society done on the sand is the poor do not sit around thinking oh uh, my life's terrible and I wish mm. someone would come and save me people just get on and they do what they can do and one of the things about these river men that is mirrored in my experience of homelessness at the time is that people forge communities that will get them through and that that's not being romantic it's not being you know where the, where the um, sort of deserved poor it's the reality is that most people will find ways of trying to forge communities now if anyone's been in melbourne recently and saw the destruction of a homelessness camp um at the bottom of flinders street under the overpass there i was going past there the other day and you know a lot of those homeless people have they have great long-term links with each other that help them function on a daily and weekly basis and when you destroy those places, whether it be a street in Collingwood or whether it be those those places where people live, those connections are, are fractured and potentially quite lost. Mm. So that my sense is that people have great ability to connect with other people in the most seemingly dire circumstances. And while some people shun or even fear the homeless, I think, you know, they should fear us because homeless people are more likely to be find themselves in um, difficulty... <laughs> from other people than create problems. Mm. It's interesting you say that because um, we're actually almost out of time for our whole show, um, Tony, but um, I was thinking we about... Yeah, hour. we can do. We could easily do that. Um, I was thinking of the, the Collingwood Abbotsford side of the river and then the other side of the river, which hasn't changed as much really yeah. and people um in in those areas i mean look like there's always exceptions but in that sort of you know in the q hawthorne yeah. and, and the sort of where there's a lot of parklands there hasn't had the radical yeah. change compared to the other side what's what's well, that telling us i mean th- that's quite interesting it's a great observation and people might say oh well, they're bigger houses and yeah it's about power it's about money it's about power and you know one of the things i was looking at this morning is that the most recent dramatic change, which is becoming a real a new problem, is that again on on the industrial what I used to call the industrial side of the river, the climate richness side, it's now being invaded by high rise. That is, in fact, and people might it's literally taking the sun off the river. 
So that afternoon sun that is important to the health of the river, that is important to people who might want to enjoy the river, mm. is being taken by people who are now living in high-rise condominiums along that side of the river. So it's sort of it's now got this like really bizarre power shift where the part of the river that I lived on no one wanted now it's covered by people who want to live in high rise and in doing so they're actually again creating a, a, a division between themselves and, and others in a way that is detrimental not only to a wider use of the river but to the health of the river itself and that can only happen because of, of money I mean the planning permissions for those um, to Hi. many people seem ludicrous but mm. they, they seem to be the governments seem to see this as, as something that's not an issue, whereas it's a very important social issue and it's a very important environmental issue. We're going to have to leave it there, but it's been an absolute pleasure. And you can catch Tony Birch, and I think um, um, rivalled in um, interesting conversation only by the person he's going to have a conversation with, which is Bruce Pascoe, um, poet and historian. And Bruce is, um, we've had him on many times in, in recent years talking about his Dark Emu book, um, which really makes us look differently um, at our history in Australia and um, the way that, you know, the European explorers describe the country v the stories that have been. Um, believed since that time but um, both of them um, Tony Birch and Bruce Pascoe in conversation uh, tomorrow night um, down at the the sort of mouth of the river down at library at the dock Um, you need to book but it is free and um, you can head to that um, library at the dock website to make bookings it starts at 6 p.m. and runs till 7 30 and I think it's going to be a pretty fascinating night and um, yeah have you spoken with um, Bruce before have you have I spoken with Bruce? you know in, in this sort of way or oh yeah Bruce and I were in Washington together um, the only thing about Bruce is he follows Richmond Football Club, and <laughs> yeah, other than that, that book, by the way, just won the New South Wales Premier's Award. It did. It is a remarkable, mm. groundbreaking work. I and, love it. Um, mm. It's one of those books that will have national ramifications, whereas Ghost River just. Get to hit the Melbourne. Oh, you're too modest. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, Tony Birch, and um, you need to read his back catalogue as well. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.